Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Stranger Things' Sean Levy about collaborating with Peaky Blinders' Stephen Knight on Netflix's All the Light We Cannot See. From award-winning actor Adrian Lester about the Birmingham film and TV market and his fears about AI. And from Fiction Factory's Ed Thomas and S4C's Gwen Gravel about new Welsh-language dark comedy drama Tree on a Hill. From directing movies such as Night at the Museum, Free Guy and The Adam Project, Sean Levy has become a key member of the creative team behind Netflix phenomenon Stranger Things. He now returns to the streamer to direct all four episodes of All the Light We Cannot See, a mini-series based on Anthony Durer's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel set during the Second World War, centering on the relationship between a blind French girl and a German teenager forced to join the Nazis. Levy spoke with Michael Pickard about his partnership with writer Stephen Knight, his directing style and why the series which launched worldwide earlier this month is more relevant and resonant than he could have ever imagined. Uh, Hi Sean. Hi Michael. How are you doing? Are you well? I'm good. Good, good. Um, How are you reflecting on on what you've made and and this sort of epic uh, four-part, four-hour movie that you've, you've sort of created over the last few years? Well, this was always... At every step along the way, it was one of the most creatively gratifying things I've ever done. It was unlike anything I'd ever done, um, but I found it incredibly satisfying to do something in a tone and a visual style unlike my prior work. But what you use the word reflect, what, what I'm reflecting on currently is when I made this show, it felt like it had resonant themes. But then I shot the show while Russia was invading Ukraine and I was astounded at the timeliness of many of its themes. To be now releasing the show with yet another war raging in our world, yet more evidence of the inhumane ways that humans can behave, I I reflect on the importance of these themes. I didn't do this show because it felt important. I did it because it felt resonant and um, and connective with other people. But it now feels also important that it is reminding us of certain themes that are critically urgent, namely the need to hold on to our better selves, our humanity, our empathy um, in the midst of even very dark times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it must be powerful watching it back and and perhaps some things you hadn't even realized were in the show are now coming to the fore in a different way you're watching it. I watched it for the first time with the New York audience last night. And there were images, lines, sequences where you could hear people inhale or gasp because some of it is stunningly current in its topicality, and uh, some of it reflects things we're reading and seeing online. So, uh, you know, I don't run from that, though, because if a story can be both, you know, populist and, and hopefully entertaining, but also say things that land for other people, that's ultimately the dream. Yeah, absolutely. And then you say this is unlike anything you've done before. So what was that? I know you read the book and there was a bit of a, you had to wait maybe to get get hold of the rights, but why were you so determined perhaps that you wanted to make this project? 
Well, I'd always wanted to make a pure drama and, and, and also a historic uh, drama. And so this checked those boxes, but it also, it, it was somehow, I feel like so many historical dramas, they are lovely to look at, they are finely crafted, but they are emotionally remote or cold. And I felt that there was an opportunity in this book, in this story, to do something that had sweep and epic scale um, and, and lovely aesthetics, but that was equally big in feeling, equally rich in emotion. And, uh, and so I think that was, that was the combination, the combination of epic and intimate that drew me in and made this irresistible. Yeah, and then how, I mean, can you describe your partnership with Stephen Knight in terms of, did he deliver the scripts and, and you kind of, you know, took it from there? Or what was that collaboration like you had to, to make sure you were both, you know, on the same page in terms of the story you wanted to tell? Well, I knew early on we'd be on at least a similar page because we had both read the book years earlier and we were both huge fans and immensely respectful of the book uh, long before we were thinking about writing or directing or producing it. Um, Steve, early on, when I first spoke to him, said, I don't want a writer's room. I don't want to farm out scripts to different writers. I'm going to do all of it myself. And when I got that first draft of the first episode, it was so good already. And that was the moment where I decided I would direct all of them myself. And I would approach it like a four-hour movie. And so Stephen was receptive to my notes. We would do iterations on the drafts. He would do revisions based on observations or reactions that I had. And then it was this pretty amazing partnership because neither one of us are rookies. Neither one of us are, you know, young and new and trying to puff up our chest. We both achieved enough in our careers that we are happy to hand over the baton. So when Steve was writing, Steve was, to use an American expression, Steve was definitely quarterbacking this process. He was leading the charge, writing the scripts, but then he handed them to me with complete trust. And he said, now go make them. And so the way that they got brought to life, maybe occasionally with revisions on the fly, once I cast actors, um, Steve was incredibly trusting and respectful of my stage of the process. And then of course we came back together in post-production and, and ultimately crafted episodes in a show that we both feel very proud of. And we're both definitely bonded in the fact that the most important thing was how is Anthony Doerr going to react? So when Anthony, the novelist, watched the show and was over the moon happy with it, in spite of its changes through adaptation, uh, Anthony is so enthusiastic about the way the show has come together. That was the biggest sigh of relief for Steve and I. Yeah, fantastic. And then you, you liken it to to four-hour movie. And was that a big decision for you to, to, to direct it all? Can you compare making this to, you know, four standalone episodes of Stranger Things perhaps, or, or, or is, is it the fact you're across the whole thing, a very different project then for you? Well, it is, right? Because the entirety is directed by me. Uh, and so there's one directorial style, vision, voice, and I also just didn't want to share on this one. Like the scripts were too good. I was just like, mine. Uh, and, and that was largely driven by how resonant I found the father-daughter storyline and what a personal part of my life that is. Stranger Things, uh, you know, that's duffer voice, duffer vision, but 
I've always come in and done episodes every year and I've loved it. I have found directing Stranger Things to be so creatively invigorating and, uh, and really among the many lessons of Stranger Things and this did inform all the light we cannot see. Early on, the Duffers and I, we decided that we weren't gonna think of Stranger Things as a TV series. We were gonna think of it as long form storytelling and we were gonna do it cinematically. And the satisfaction of that, the success of that has been uh, invigorating and also um, encouraging. And so I approached All the Light the same way uh, with very ambitious visual scale um, and a rigor in production design uh, and cinematography and effects that you would not normally see on most television. But again, I just, I kept saying the movie, the movie, the movie, and it happens to have these breaks every hour, but definitely I approached it cinematically. Yeah, great. I mean, if you can just sort of drill down into that a bit further, I mean, what kind of visual director are you? Do you like to use the camera in a certain way? And, and is that a thread through all your projects or, or what no, kind I think of that's a great question. or challenges did this one have? Well, I won't, I'll, I'll try not to take all of our time by going too deep dive nerdy, but you know, there's certain filmmakers who have a signature aesthetic regardless of script and which movie or show it is, right? So Baz Luhrmann, um, Wes Anderson, their work is always immediately identifiable as their work. I am a different kind of filmmaker. I set the visual language based on the tone of the screenplay. So it's why Free Guy looks very different from Night at the Museum or an Adam Project and All the Light. That is a story with a certain lyrical elegance combined with historic setting. So immediately that for me conjured up visuals that would be sumptuous and tender, lighting that would be soft and often more poetic than it is hyper-naturalistic. This isn't a Paul Greengrass World War II story. This is an Anthony Doerr novel that is uh, set in wartime, but is in many ways kind of this almost fable-like feeling. And I wanted a, a visual correlative to that tone. And so you, I rather, with my creative team, set the visual language accordingly. Award-winning actor and director Adrian Lester is known for shows including Hustle, Riviera and The Undeclared War, but he was also ambassador for this year's Birmingham film and TV market. BFTM, which had its third edition last month, brings together emerging producers and filmmakers with top executives from companies like ITV, Channel 4, Paramount, Lionsgate and Sky, with a view to making the UK industry more accessible beyond the capital. Lester spoke with Michael Picard at the event. Uh, my name's Adrian Lester, and I'm here at the BFTM at the Grand Hotel. I mean, tell us a bit about just your involvement. You've been, you're an ambassador this year, so you've, yes, been, yes. you've been quite busy promoting the, the festival or the market today. Um, just tell us a bit about how you got involved. Well, uh, it's, uh, I, I, it's now in its third year. Um, I got asked to um, come along and support uh, this year. And when I heard what was going on, I just thought, Ab absolutely. Um, I'm... Uh, supporting the rep theatre, I'm um, part of E2E, I'm, I'm the patron for E2E, everything to everybody, 
at the library, um, patron for this. Uh, I love my home city. I like how it feels, how it looks, and I think we punch above our weight, but we sort of apologize for ourselves too much. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk, hasn't there, in the industry about moving outside of London. I mean, how important is it, do you feel, events like this are to, to get voices from, you know, not just the West Midlands, but across, you know, northern England, you know, outside London, um, you know, to give them those opportunities and pathways into to making TV? Yeah, it, it's, it's essential. It's essential. Um, it's not just London that represents the whole country. It's the whole country. And as much as we've had great artistic success come out of Leeds and Manchester and Cardiff and so on, um, we, have to, we have to get Birmingham going as well. Um, we, we just have to. I think that um, every region, every country expresses itself through its culture. Yeah. It's, it's, it's music, it's, it's um, dress sense, it's a history of dress and traditional clothing and so on. Um, they're all done by artists. They're all taken care of by artists. And if you don't go and find those artists with their unique visions and their unique ideas, you're very slowly gonna kill the industry that you're, you're supposed to be a part of. Yeah. So it, it's up to the industry to get up, leave its safe London offices, its safe New York offices, its safe LA offices, and go out and find the talent elsewhere. Yeah. It's interesting going back to LA now. LA used to be a, a, a hive of production and ideas and so on and actually LA now has become a place of connectivity where the work gets done is in London in Budapest in uh, Prague in Ireland in it just gets done everywhere yeah I mean how do you reflect on I guess your own pathway into the business and, and are those opportunities still there are there new opportunities how has it perhaps changed you think and what more needs to be done well, my pathway into the business was purely as a vocational actor. It was, it was always based on what I could get up and do in front of someone that uh, secured my, my sort of line of employability and my, my path through my career. But when it comes to what I can write and, and film and create in that sense, if I'm lucky enough to have the right equipment, I could be in a basement flat in Scunthorpe and come up with the most amazing idea for a series. Mm -hmm. And every TV department now, every uh, production house, every uh, um, sort of monster of, of entertainment, you know, the big MGMs and the big Fox Studios and so on, they all, all have a department that goes through social media looking at people who are just posting their own content and, and having a quirky take on situations with parents or languages or and some of these people are incredibly funny they impersonate their own characters as they just and they're looking at them and going oh how about a story there how about a deal there how about a fresh vibrant voices and this is this is very much part of that if you ask any production company i think in the world what do you want what, what, what would you like to be your next big success they will all say the same thing in different ways they all want something new all of them they all want something that's going to break the mold it's going to be fantastic it's going to like you know shake the industry up they want a unique and they'll, and they'll quote things that, are, that have, that have um, been disruptors they'll quote things like succession they'll quote things like breaking bad they'll quote things like you know maybe a spin-off better call Saul or but they will all they will all ask for something like that 
and they'll sit in their offices and wait for it to come to them. Okay, that's one way of doing it. But when new ideas do come to these production houses and something vibrant and special and wonderful does uh, uh, happen take place, there's always a point where they get cold feet. Mm -hmm. Always happens when you commit money, they risk. A point where they get cold feet. And at that point, if those production houses could hear themselves, they all say the same thing. Yeah, but what have they done before? What's their track record? Is there anything I can watch that he's directed? Is there, yeah, but can I have something else that they've written? Can I, can I just see something else to help me make a decision? And then you realize, no, because they're new. That's what being new means. That's what being vibrant means. That's what being a disruptor means. It means your point of view, your idea of what could happen on screen is unlike anything you've ever seen before. Well, you can't back something like that if you're waiting for it to be like something you've seen before to make you feel easier about putting your money in then it has to be a decision based on heart. And then you realize that the commissioners themselves have to have talent mm -hmm. in order to keep the door open to the right people. Yeah. And the commissioning houses that don't have talent, they're regurgitating old stuff that we've seen before or buying stuff from other people. The ones that do have talent, they've got a plethora of entertainment lined up on their channels that is just weird, wonderful, and amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that particularly acute at the moment, we know cost of living crisis, uh, there seems to be a commissioning slowdown at the moment, people are sort of taking their time and, and putting their money, you know, more targeted places. Is that, does that, is that anti-risk, would you say? I mean, are, are people going to rest on their laurels and, and go back to those comforting genres and types of stories that we probably may have seen before, they rather will, than take those risks? They will do whatever makes the audience watch. Mm -hmm. If you get a commissioner who says, listen, we can't, we can't risk our money anymore, we have to we have to go back to comforting stories. Nowadays, it's not about viewing figures. That used to be the way it was before. Not if you're not if you're not if you're trustful channel, then yes. But nowadays, it's about pu putting on what people know they can watch only on your channel. So you can take those risks. It's just less money in it. Yeah, yeah. And and how have how are you, how have you been sort of the last year with the, the SAG strike? How has that affected what you've been doing? And then what are you up to at the moment? There was a project I was doing with Netflix that's now on pause because of the SAG strike. And um, there's a project I did for Disney uh, a year ago that they've given some dates for release mm -hmm. suddenly. It was supposed to be this this you know this Christmas, this autumn, this Christmas, but uh, they've delayed it because of the the, the, the SAG strike. Um, but what's being demanded by the, by the union is um, perfectly reasonable and sensible. The idea that if you work on a, one of those shows for Disney, Netflix, whatever, if you work on the show, they want to put into contract that they have the right to map your face, um, take your expressions, take your voice and mannerisms, and then they can own that forever. And they buy it when they employ you as an actor on one project, they buy your, the map of yourself. Then, with increasing AI capability, if they want to stick you as a small part in another thing they're doing, they can. They just map you in. They'll get someone to walk the role and map onto them you. Yeah, so AI is, you know, there's a lot of talk about money and just getting paid, but AI is a huge part of this argument. It's a huge part of the argument yeah. because they, they, are, they are thinking, well, I don't need the actor who I have to fly from there to there, or I have to, I don't need the real human being because real human beings aren't interested in watching real human beings. I can get real human beings to pay me money so I can send them stories written by a computer 
drawn by a computer and animated by a computer. And those real human beings won't know the difference. They'll look at that as being what life's like. And I will just carve all this money up and not have to pay any real human beings. I can just use a machine to do it. And what Saga's saying is, no. The writer's strike was, if, basically this, I mean, imagine a world where you have to, you have to fight with companies to stipulate this rule. When a drama is created for your channel, a human writer must be involved. And I think that also the contract says, and have final say over the ending of the script. Mm -hmm. yeah. Imagine having to fight for that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's your livelihood, isn't it? That's, that's the whole argument, yeah. But there's, there's that. But some people are, can't see the fact that if it's, if it's written, devised, drawn, acted, and directed by a computer, at the heart of it will not be a reflection of what life is like. I can, I can guarantee that if, if the channel did, if Disney did that, and if, say, Netflix did that, and that was all their content, I can guarantee, and I would put money into a channel that would pop up pretty quickly, that was, you know, scripted by humans, yeah. acted by humans, filmed by humans, about humans. I guarantee that as you're paying your money to watch these shows, you just see they'd be emptier and emptier mm -hmm. and emptier and less and less and less and less believable. Mm -hmm. And then you'd pay to go to another channel where it was real. Yeah, yeah. Are, are those fears sort of reflected in the UK as well? Or is that, I mean, these are global streamers and, and the yeah. US industry particularly, but are you seeing that over here as well? Yeah, people are looking at it and going, it's not just a fear of losing revenue, it's losing a job. It's actually going, what does your industry become? Mm -hmm. If it's not real people talking to real people, what does it become? Yeah. We live in a world now where the irony is, on your computer as you navigate through websites, a robot will ask you to prove that you're not a robot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you'll click through these things. Mm -hmm. And I heard that once you click, I am not a robot. It's not the clicking and the choosing that does the thing. You click and you give it permission in the terms and conditions to look back over your scrolling history mm -hmm. to see that you, that you have a history of scrolling and that you're not a robot. It also will take from that where you've been looking and if you want to buy something and they pass it on to someone who wants to sell you something. Yeah. Yeah. While you're ticking on crosswalks and flipping where's the motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, wow. I mean, so where, where do we end up? Where are we going to be in a year or two years? I mean, TV will be changing, you know. The strike will be over. TV won't change in that it'll still be the same because they will, they will bow down to those rules. Yeah. They simply will. Um, there's no if, there's no maybe, there's no negotiating tactic. They simply will because there's no way that as an actor, if somebody said to me, you work for my company once, I map your face. I can make your body and your face and your mouth say anything I wanted, wanted to say on my channels. I, I consider myself a, a major supporting actor or a major lead or a major lead actor. That's what I that's what I do. Imagine you work for a company and then they put me in a role where I've got like one line and I you know in the background of something. You could, I could be attached to a script that I would never do because they have the power to say so. If that was the absolute, if that was the world of of, of screen acting, I'd do theatre. I would say no. I'm not getting mapped. I'm going to just do theatre. Yeah. I'll do musicals. I'll do West End. I'll do. No, thank you very much. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'm, I'll be over here. <laughs> also attending was Louise Sutton, who was recently appointed executive producer at House North, the new Manchester based offshoot of BBC Studios owned House Productions, maker of series including Six Four for ITVX, The Wonder for Netflix, and Sherwood for the BBC. 
Sutton also spoke to Michael about the new operation and the significance of events like BFTM. Hi, my name's Louise Sutton. I work at House Productions. More specifically, I run the office in Manchester for House North. Great, and so that's, that's been a recent um, sort of start-up for you. How, how's it going at House North? Really good, really good. I've got um, a development exec working with me, uh, a brilliant woman called G, uh, and she's been with me for about six weeks, um, and it's been really busy, actually. Now that it's out there and people know what we're looking for, it's it's been really helpful. I've just had some amazing submissions and had some brilliant meetings, and, you know, we've just got a bit of a bit of momentum at the moment. That's good. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the industry over the last few years about breaking out of London and and what's then been the response from the community when you do open up in Manchester and I imagine that the door is always uh, open is it? Well it's I'm from Manchester I live there so it's been everyone's been super supportive you know there's not that many indies there relatively compared to London so most of us have known each other for a long time and worked together before so it's a very you know there's and there's enough work for us all we all do slightly different things so it's everyone's been really supportive and i think it helps that i already lived and worked in manchester i think sometimes um it can look a bit like uh a bit cynical but i think this is very clearly um, something that I wanted to do for a long time and the house wanted to do for a long time so it's been yeah. it's been really um, everyone's been really kind yeah I mean how did that partnership come together with, with house particularly because you know they've, they've been on the map with Sherwood and other things in the last couple of years how did you kind of come to this idea to open house north we were introduced Juliet and Tessa and I were introduced a while ago by somebody we had worked with mutually separately mm-hmm. and they just thought that we would get on with each other and they were right so as is often the way I think in this industry we were talking for a really long time about what and when and how and so it became you know about 18 months ago I started with House working with them in the London office traveling down to London a couple of days a week getting to know the team getting to know the slate Um, and sort of becoming part of the house family and all the while whilst I was working and developing and working on various shows we were having an ongoing conversation about what it would look like so what's been really positive is that it's been an organic process it's not been forced it's not felt like we've been on the clock it's evolved and I think that's what and it's, it's evolved in a way that feels like a really natural, um, uh, my, the slate that's in in the House North office is a natural, it complements the House slate. It's part of a, a bigger picture, but it plays to my strengths and my tastes. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been an evolution, a really satisfying. Yeah. And what kind of things are you focusing on? Is it just drama? Or I, I think you, when you launched, you announced that you were kind of looking more to push into half hours and and younger kind of content. How what, how are you building that slate? Um, well, I already had a few shows in development that were leaning that way anyway. Again, that sort of leaned into my previous experience and my personal taste. Um, so, you know, we've got a various 
uh, lenses, I guess you would say. Um, so, you know, Northern Voices is obviously a really big part of that picture. And I include, you know, voices from the West Midlands, voices from Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. You know, I'm working with writers from all of those areas. So um, amplifying and encouraging those voices. And then also, like you say, the, the half-hour comedy and half-hour drama slots are something that I am looking to actively develop just yeah. because it, it feels like a great opportunity and there's a, just so much talent and there it's not being covered as much by some of the other indies in the north so it's just mm-hmm. a good fit yeah yeah and then we're at the Birmingham film and tv market today I mean what brings you here and I gather you're a regular so what I brings you here for a third year well I haven't always lived in Manchester <laughs> as it happens I went to school in Birmingham uh, so I lived here from when I was three to eighteen and uh, very affectionate towards Birmingham and the West Midlands in general. And when Lou Osborne was starting out, we have a mutual friend, one of my friends from school who's here today working as well, and so she put us in touch, and so that's what brought me here. And then I came back because I genuinely believe in the event and the people behind it, and I believe that the West Midlands is a really fertile ground for, for talent and I want to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, what do you make, you know, we've seen in the last week or so BBC's Cancelled Doctors, which was obviously a big regional production here. Yeah. I mean, what do you, you know, where are those now opportunities for new writers, new actors even coming up and, and how do you think the region can kind of respond when it does get a knockback like that? I don't know. It's, it's awful really, isn't it? I feel so sorry for everybody involved and it mustn't have been an easy decision by the BBC you know even it, they must have agonised over it and, and it's never easy cancelling any show but certainly one that's been around for 23 years it must have been very very difficult and obviously the BBC have a very strong commitment to production outside of London so I mean hopefully I don't think anything will replace it if I'm honest I can't see anything replacing that entry-level um, gig but there will be new opportunities there are always new opportunities and that's the best thing one of the brilliant things sorry about this industry is that it constantly reinvents itself so whilst it feels like a catastrophe at the moment it, the region will recover there will be other productions it will reinvent itself it just has only just happened so I don't think anybody really knows um, and in terms of opportunities for new writers, you know, I think there's some new continuing dramas coming out of the BBC shortly. Um, soaps continue to prosper, even though they're not that you know they're not really entry level positions. But you know, there are opportunities out there. It's hard. The industry is quite tricky at the moment. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's tricky for established talent. Yeah. So for people starting out. It's even trickier, but you know, as Caroline said, writers will write, directors will direct. You, but they will find a way. The thing that creative, creative people are resilient and they are resourceful. So, yeah, and, and you know, on the on the broader outlook on the industry, I mean, how are you finding at the moment? We're hearing about commissioners sort of slowing down a little bit and, and really 
you know, more cherry picking the stuff than perhaps they used to, and budgets are tightening because of costs going up. I mean, how how is it for you at the moment? And you know, not just you know generally, but obviously starting a new company and trying to build that slate in the current you know climate. I think everybody's feeling the pinch. Mm-hmm. This you know a result of the the strikes in the, in America and cost of living crisis, and you know I think it's. You sort of have to look at the industry in the context of, you know, there's a bigger picture. It's not just about film and TV. It's across the board, you know, everybody, everywhere is feeling the pinch. So it's harder than it has been, but it's, you know, there are still plenty of opportunities out there. There's still, um, people are still commissioning, people are still buying, people are still watching. That's the, the crucial thing. And there is a huge appetite for drama and there's a huge appetite for homegrown drama. So most of the time you've just got to hold your nerve and, and, and it, it, when it's slow it will get quicker and when it's quick it will get slower and that's the nature of the business and it always has been it's not for most people it's not a constant stream of work so you just have to keep developing keep believing in your writers keep believing in yourself um, and uh, keep your head up yeah and then is there a shopping list is there some a kind of show you'd really love to make if if someone came to, to pitch you that today or another time, what are you looking for? I'm I'm looking for at the moment sitcoms and yeah. that I they're they're out of fashion, yeah. um, but they are the backbone of the comedy schedule. There's been a bit of a I think it's a reaction to some amazing shows that have been on, like The Bear or um, you know some of those brilliant half hours that come out of the states or even things like end of the fucking world uh, or you know those kinds of half hours there's there's been a bit of a drag towards comedy drama and i but i'm i'm keen on some straight up yeah. barrel of laughs comedy <laughs> that's why s4c and bbc wales will debut a new dark comedy drama called tree on a hill later this month produced by Tenopolis-owned Fiction Factory and written by company founder Ed Thomas, creator of Hinterland. The six-part series has the backing of Creative Wales and All3 Media International, which is distributing the show around the world using the same production team and business model of shooting in both Welsh and English with a view to global success. Thomas and S4C head of drama Gwenlian Gravel spoke to Michael Pickard about the project and why it represents a move away from noir crime drama while retaining a distinctly local, albeit more quirky, sensibility. Uh, Hi, I'm Ed Thomas, uh, founder of Fiction Factory, uh, writer and director of Tree on a Hill, Prana Abrin. Hi, I'm Gwen Gravel and I'm the head of scripted at uh, S4C, which is uh, a... uh, an honour because you know I get to work with talent like Ed and I'm really excited about our new series together. I mean so ha- how yeah. have you seen over the last four years how have you seen the uh, international uh, interest in Welsh language drama and how has that you know evolved your own decision making process how do you find that balance between serving your core Welsh language audience you know in Wales and the potential for selling these shows overseas? Uh, well, we all know now that it's, you know, the, the, the language isn't such a barrier. And in fact, I think the language gives it the uniqueness that maybe people are looking for. Um, you know, the, the language is also a character in our in our shows. And I think that uh, series like Squid Games and Lupin and, and all those other great shows 
have shown that there's an appetite out there for non-English language drama. So we, we can offer something that's slightly different, but also is exciting and entertaining and um, says something about uh, maybe a place where nobody's ever visited before. And I think it's just really a really exciting time for us. Uh, also means that we can work alongside great distributors around the world, distributors, and also work with other broadcasters and streamers. We're really lucky at the moment that some of our dramas are being shown on um, Ryan Reynolds' channel, um, Maximum Effort, so, uh, on every Wednesday. So it's just, you know, that's a great platform for us. We're also um, and with Prenora Bryn, you know, working on, alongside all three media. We work with the Creative Wales Welsh Government and with BBC Wales. Um, we've always had a really good relationship with them, you know, working alongside, alongside them with uh, Hidden and Keeping Faith. So, you know, we, we've also worked with Channel 4. So we, we as I say, we, we're quite a, an, an open broadcaster. Um, so that we, you know, really like to work with other partners to get things made. And, and Ed, I guess you were one of the chief architects, perhaps, of, of this sort of boom in Welsh drama, you know, with Hinterland a, a few years ago. I mean, how have you seen on the production side, you know, your interest and, and perhaps pitching shows and, and how has it been for you on, on that side of the, the fence? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I mean, we we brokered the deals with, with BBC and all three and the whole model of, of uh, doing crime drama. I mean, back in the day, we picked a crime drama because it was the most consumed uh, genre out there. And if we couldn't sell a Welsh cop show, what kind of country would we be? So that's what was the pitch to S4C was going to be. And that succeeded. What I'm pleased about with Prenner, Brinchy and Hill, the same partners again, S4C, BBC Wales, all three, Creative uh, Wales, Welsh Assembly Government. There's no European money this time, but uh, that's made up with tax credits and the rest of it. However, I think the model is exactly the same as as Hinterland, uh, finding something which is authentic. And we were shot in my hometown. It rained worse than it is currently raining. 17 weeks, both languages, up to our knees in mud. But the thing is, I grew up in a bilingual Wales. The area is a bilingual place. My dad had a butcher shop. So all that stuff comes out of a sense of place. And the trick is as the blueprint for Hinterland was, the more local we make it, the more we trust the humour, the construction of the characters and the tone, the hope is that the people will then think, God, this, this is this is something that a story, a landscape that could happen in, in, in another country. So therefore, if people want to watch it in Welsh, it should be available. And all three are working really hard to present it in Welsh as well as English. That That's really the, the template. We have to be outward looking it's fine to be local but we have to be trust in the local to be universal and that's that's the trick of writers this time around the only difference between hinterland and trina hill is that i'm kind of done with crime uh, i can't do it anymore it's not fresh for me but loads of people can still innovate with it so i'm not anti-crime drama it's just that i i'm i'm done with it but uh there's a little crime in this but the but the but the lens looks at a kind of more surreal, absurdist universe. Uh, we're opening tonight in Astrogunlice Miners Welfare Hall, which is uh, uh, a place that I spent a lot of my misspent youth. But the thing is that um, I think it's kind of, it feels true to that that area, you know, that the position is desperate but never serious. Resilience is at the heart of the people I grew up with. And yeah. putting that through an absurdist, mischievous lens 
to talk about a changing world is where I wanted to to set this. And I'm really pleased that SOC came on board really early on BBC and then we financed it and the way we went. And then the only downside is it takes twice as long to shoot it in both languages. And I had to buy wet weather gear uh, halfway through the shoot because the other one was already soaked. Ed, can you just tell us, you know, introduce us to the story and, and who are the characters that we follow through this story? Yeah, it's in a in a frontier town similar to I grew up with. Uh, Prenerbrin is a tree on a hill. It's based, it riffs on a really old folk uh, song called Prenerbrin, Tree on a Hill. And largely, it's a naughty existential poem about uh, the tree, a, a bird sits in a branch, a branch sits on the tree, the tree sits on the hill, the hill sits on the earth, and the earth spins on nothing. The last line is a kind of, oh, I thought this was going to have a happy ending. But it's a kind of, it's a playful, mischievous, existential scream. This doesn't scream, but hopefully, I don't know, it's got uh, people who will respond to it, will see that its roots are in some of uh, some of Aki Karismaki's maybe his films. That sounds grandiose, but those that kind of deadpan stuff. And then it just feels contemporary to me, but it just, as I said earlier, it also feels that uh, the, the characters are well-known kind of Welsh characters, but with a little mischievous twist and how those ordinary people respond to an extraordinary event which happens accidentally and spins out uh, into the uh, wider community. So everybody's involved in the end, uh, but it's a kind of upside down under Milt Wood. Gwen, what was, you know, when you got the pitch for this show, I mean, what, what were your first thoughts? It, it, absurd... I didn't, I, I didn't <laughs> say that. I didn't say that. I didn't mention that. <laughs> no, I, I, I think, as, as Ed said, it was, you know, these ordinary people doing really extraordinary things. And it feels like it also a timeless world. I mean, the way that the, de- the design elements, I must talk about that, and the costumes, you know, you're not quite sure if if it's period or if it's contemporary which just makes it such a, a, a beautiful watch. But if, you know, going back to your question about, you know, when I when I read it first, I just thought that this was Ed's kind of love letter to the area where he was brought up. And there was, you know, it, there was a sort of, there was hope in it as well. And there was a bit of, you know, the mischievous and the comedy, you know, it was something that was missing with some of our previous shows, I think. You know, everything got a bit too dark. And I think we mentioned, you know, we talked about that. Everything is so dark and, depressing but this there was some sort of in you know, hope I mean even though sometimes you know the, the change within that community and in Prenerbrin is difficult for the people living there but I think there's always hope and we always have to hold on to hope. I mean a, an absurdist sort of comedy drama mystery can be it sounds like it might be quite a, a difficult tone to sort of get right and, and maybe could split the audience a little bit how did you both want to ensure that this was you know for a broad audience yet was quite specific and, and something very different uh you grow the character you grow the plot out of the characters you can't impose a plot on something just because you think you want to do an absurdist riff you've got to really invest in the characters inventing character trusting in character and uh, interrogating what those characters would do given the set of circumstances is always the lead so the plot kind of follows the character it's tricky to do because you've got to make sure that there's forward momentum but um, and story is important but you've got to construct something which feels at, at, at each step of the 
the the, the changes or the or the or the threats or the, the the choices they have that it feels real to that. So we're serving warm, identifiable characters living through great change, but absolutely believable. Even though some of that believability pushes the surreal and nods at a kind of slightly timeless stranger universe. It's a new genre, which is fantastic. I think you know we're always having we need to move on. We need to move on from the the typical your typical crime genres. I think audiences want to be you know they want to lean into shows. They don't want to just you know watch things passively. Uh, and and you know it, I mean who would have thought that audiences would love White Lotus so much? You know there was nothing else that ex- existed like that um, in any genre. So you know we we always have to think forward about right what what would you know what would the audience want you know we can't keep hanging back to the usual crime as as um ed said ed can you take us into the just i guess the creative process who you work with and and how you um you know take this project from development into production yeah i mean it's it feels like doing the last bank job when you get people who have long since retired oh no i don't do that to get the best getaway driver and they get best combination safe cracker but it feels like uh, you know a lot of the team that created Hinterland. They've moved on to all kinds of different things. Um, I like to work with new people, but also kind of evolve, bring out a kind of um, work with designers and costume and you know key key personnel. Obviously, DOP um, worked with all those people a lot. Just really being open and playful about about uh, the palette we might bring to it. It also needs to be kind of timeless the way to do that is to be quite eclectic when i grew up cna had london fashions two years later than than they came out in london so we're used to being two years behind but also like hannah daniel was in hinterland richard harrington was in hinterland a lot of the same cast playing different characters but hannah interestingly said that it's like uh it's like astragalice on acid it's a kind of mainstream show with a with a kind of with a different edge the tone obviously is important when it got too sentimental you put lemon on it when it gets too it's too acid you put a bit of feeling in it that's the kind of landscape um of the of the the comedy but also like hinterland you know we were lucky enough to grow up in a amazing landscape so we built the tree on the top of the hill where i used to hang out with my mate so it's a real uh, as Gwen, gwen says it is a love letter but um uh it's a it's a really good um uh combination of people i've worked with before and all people who who kind of worked across genre from theater as well my background is in theater and you know we we cross unselfconsciously you know from telly to theater to opera and back again without thinking that oh no we can't do that so this is probably the most theatrical thing i've written but maybe <laughs> Maybe, um, maybe that will still count. There are long scenes. There's the first scene of part ep two is about twelve pages, which is unusual. So it's got to be something in it that breaks through elegantly, hopefully, and interestingly. Otherwise, there is no point. Definitely, and I suppose they do. So they do that twelve minute scene in in Welsh and English. I mean, tell us a bit about the you know that bilingual model and and how you produce a Welsh and an English version back to back. But that was interesting because we we really. Normally, you have very little rehearsal. This time around, because of those kind of scenes, we had two and a half weeks rehearsal, which the actors loved. And that's what gave it a kind of, so we worked on character and all those things that you'd, you'd, you'd approach it 
uh, a process you'd approach for uh, theatre. Uh, but they loved it. And out of that, those decisions, it's thrilling 16 weeks in that you see some of those decisions coming to fruition. But obviously, you've got to do that when there are scenes which are six, seven, eight minutes, especially in two languages. You've got to keep keep it free. You've got to make sure, yes, you have three cameras. You've got to keep it fluid. It's amazing how often in this show we use a two-shot because a two-shot means that the, the actors are reacting rather than, rather than it all being created in the edit. You've got to go that way. Otherwise, we'd still be shooting now and after Christmas. But that's the challenge, and it was great fun to do, and hopefully that fun is on the screen. Uh, and if it isn't, then that's my fault, not the actors. Fantastic. I mean, Gwen, I guess maybe more broadly, I mean, what kind of challenges are you facing at the moment? S4C, we're, we're hearing lots of stories about a commissioning slowdown and, and people watching watching the pennies, I guess, as, as where they put them. And I mean, how, how is that affecting your slate and, and what you're commissioning at the moment? Well, we're not slowing down. <laughs> and, you know, we, we know how important drama is to um to S4C as as a broadcaster because also it, I say it does give us um you know an international it helps us internationally as well and it helps taking you know the Welsh language out to to, to the world um yeah getting it making sure there's a variety in the slates um we've also we've just started to develop an interactive film we've also set up a um cinema friend called Cinema Cymru with Creative Wales and Film Cymru. So we're hoping to do a Welsh language um, cinema release film every year. So yeah, we're really as ambitious as ever. And uh, yeah, and, and I think by showcasing series like um, Planner of Bryn, uh, you know, it, it just shows what we can achieve, even though we're a small country, you know, we've got big ambitions. And and so we'll see Tree on a Hill on S4C this month in November, and it's going to be on the BBC uh, next year, I believe. So yeah, in early February, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting. I always, um, you know, when I put social media posts about Welsh drama and S4C drama in particular, people are always asking, "Oh, where can I watch it? Where can I watch it?" And it's interesting. A lot of people don't realise they can watch it on iPlayer okay. straight away yeah, exactly. on S4C. Um, with, I guess, subtitles. Yeah, exactly. It'll be on an iPlayer straight away from, um, I think the first three apps are on from the 19th, Gwen, and then, then yeah. because I only finished locking the Welsh version yesterday, so we've got a bit of post-production to do, but it'll be ready, Gwen, honest. <laughs> <laughs> it better be. <laughs> no, I think the audience are really going to love it, you know, um, and it's going to be really, it's a really special drama. Ed Thomas and Gwen Gravel speaking with Michael Picard. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 